We've been walking through the book of Exodus for a few weeks now, four or five, and it's been an exciting time. Uh, But this morning, we find ourselves in the real downtown of the Old Testament, right? These are the events that will be talked about for years and years and years to come. In fact, we're talking about them this morning, now that I think about it. These events of God bringing his people out of Israel foreshadow, in many ways, what Christ has done for us brought us out of our slavery to sin. Chapters 5 through 15 really do for us recount the central events in Israel's history, and they foreshadow the supreme event in human history. Within them, we will encounter judgment and mercy, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, redemption and ruin, rescue and remorse. There's some really fun chapters. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we did the first part of this, chapters 5 and 6, and we're not going all the way through chapter 15 this morning, but we will cover nine of the ten plagues together, and that's going to be chapters 7 through 10. Uh, some of y'all were complaining kind of in Sunday school. You're like, we covered so much last week. You did two chapters, and um, I'm sorry. It's just kind of how I think the author has put his material together. And so this morning is going to be doubly challenging as we cover three pretty lengthy chapters all at once together. Um, I'm not going to read each and every verse like we usually do, and so I'll be highlighting key themes. It will benefit you to have a Bible out in front of you, and and I'll call out chapter and verse, and then you can look down and see kind of what I'm reading as we work through the text and point out key themes together. But let's get our bearings a little bit and and set the stage, right? Uh, To this point in Exodus, we've been waiting on God to deliver on his promise by delivering his people. The drama's been building since chapter 1 when we discovered that the people of Israel were enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. We, We then learned that God was not absent, but that he was very present and at work among his people, that he was keeping his promise to Abraham. He was multiplying Abraham's descendants, and they were growing even though they were being oppressed. We also saw that God was raising up a deliverer, someone that would curry the same favor as Noah, someone else who was placed in an ark and saved from waters of judgment. Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's own family. Then he screwed it up. He killed a guy and he was put into exile. And we saw him in chapters uh, three through four that he was uh, tending sheep, which Egyptians looked down on. He was kind of living in his father-in-law's basement, uh, doing the best he could, but life hadn't got much better. And then all at once, God showed up in a burning bush, not one of those gas fireplaces with the logs, right? So it was really impressive that the bush wasn't burnt up. He went up to it and, and God told him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I'm going to set my people free. Moses thought, this is great. And then he said, therefore, I'm going to send you. And Moses thought, that's not so great. Uh, I don't know if you know, but I'm not really a typical deliverer. I I don't talk all that well, and I just, I don't think maybe you should find somebody else. God then talks Moses into going, and Moses goes. They're on their way. Uh, He screws up a little bit with his kid. God tries to kill him. His wife saves him by her obedience and the blood of his son in chapter 4. They finally get before the elders of Israel, and they tell them this story. They tell them all that God has done and said. He says, God, he's going to make good on his promise to your fathers. He's going to deliver you. The 400 years of slavery that he foretold back in Genesis 15, that time is up and your deliverance is on the horizon. And the people say, this sounds really, really good. And they begin to bow down and worship God. And then last week we came into chapters 5 and 6 and we saw that the plan hit a bit of a snag 
It was an anticipated snag. God told Moses that Pharaoh wasn't going to like this. But nonetheless, he was still greatly discouraged when Pharaoh scoffed at him and said, Who is Yahweh? Never heard of him. I'm not going to let the people go. In fact, the only reason that you're having these delusions of grandeur, of worshiping in the wilderness, is because you're lazy. That's what it is. You guys are slackers. And so he says, you know, we give you straw to make bricks. We're taking it away. You have to find your own straw to put these bricks together from now on. Once you have more work to do, you won't be thinking about going out and worshiping to some god. Who is this god of slaves that says to me, I am Pharaoh. I'm a god myself. And I make the law in Egypt. Moses was really down. And he's like, God, why did you call me? I told you that I wasn't the guy for the job. What are you doing here? Why have you brought evil on this people? God doesn't answer Moses' question. He just comes back and reminds him of what he's done. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promises. I'm going to redeem this people. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to get my glory. I'm working sovereignly to save my special people for my own glory, my own renown, so that all of Egypt and all of the world will know just who I am. And so that's where we are today. Moses is a little bit encouraged. He's got some uh, wind beneath his wings a little bit. And he's getting ready to go back into Pharaoh with his brother Aaron and make some more demands that will be rebuffed. As we unpack the nine of the ten signs and wonders, as the biblical author calls them, we we call them plagues, right? Uh, The melody line of Exodus, and I think of all of Scripture, will become very apparent. It's going to play loudly in your ears, I hope, which I've already said it once, and it's our main idea this morning, that God works sovereignly to save a special people for his glory. One of the, 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 a statement that might undergird all of this pericope would come from Isaiah 42.8, where the Lord announces, he says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. All of these plagues are performed so that everybody will know just who God is. We are to see in the plagues God's awesome power, God's wisdom, his mysterious providence, his justice, his mercy, his beauty, his worthiness. We are to see in the plagues the very glory of God. And so the primary application of our text this morning is to have our knees shake in awe of our good and mighty King. We apply this text to our lives by seeing what it teaches us about God, by looking upon His face and saying, wow, what a God, what a Savior. I can't believe that He cares for me. The three themes that I want to bring out as we work through this Scripture together are are written on your bulletin. We're going to see repetitively, almost ad nauseum, the heart of Pharaoh being hardened. We'll also see the distinction of Israel, and then we will see the glory of God, or God making himself known, which I've already indicated is the primary theme in the section. Let's pray together, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we journey through this section of Scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds, that we might think well, that you would soften our hearts, that we might be shaped by your word, and that you would give us a real sense of your presence, that you would move us into worshiping you and to giving you the glory that you are due, giving you the singular devotion that is yours alone. 
Father, increase our affections for you. Help this text to cause us to worship. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in in verse 7 of chapter 7, you'll read that Moses and Aaron are in their 80s, and they're getting ready to do something extraordinary, and they go before the most powerful man in the world at that period of time, Pharaoh, and they tell him, let God's people go so that they may go and serve or worship him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, that doesn't sound so great, but let me check your credentials if I'm going to take you seriously. Why Why should I listen to you? Show me a miracle. And so they do. They have the staff in their hand, that staff trick where they throw it on the ground and it turns into a snake, and they do that, and Pharaoh says, hmm, that's kind of impressive. But he has Hogwarts on speed dial, and he calls up some magicians and some wise men and some sorcerers, and they're able to repeat the feat, right? We're not told how they do it, whether it's by sleight of hand or misdirection or some kind of demonic power. The text doesn't seem concerned with telling us, so I don't know. They just do it. But they're able to do the same thing. And so we read in 7.12, For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Aaron's staff swallowing up their staffs is significant here in this prelude to the plagues because it shows us in seed form the end result of the exodus. Serpents were a picture of authority. If you've seen uh, like, uh, like King Tut's coffin, the face thing that's made of gold, there's a snake on there, there's a serpent. And so it ha- it's kind of a symbolic thing of e- Egypt's power and their prowess. At any rate, Aaron's staff swallows up them because Aaron's God is mightier than their small g gods. This word swallow actually only shows up one other place in Exodus, and it's in verse 12 of chapter 15 when the sea swallows up the Egyptian army. And so we kind of have some foreshadowing here, right? The end of this whole ordeal is already being hinted at. Pharaoh's not going to heed the warning that he's getting now, right? Let the people go or else, and he's not going to get it later. He's going to walk into judgment. We picked up on the God versus Pharaoh dynamic last week, and it's going to continue the rest of the way through the Exodus. God is pitting himself not only against Pharaoh, but against these smaller G gods in Israel. Pharaoh will refuse to wave the white flag, and so we see the signs and wonders of God begin. And in obedience to God's command, Moses meets Pharaoh on the bank of the Nile the next morning, and he announces to him once more in chapter 7, verse 17, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Moses and Aaron do this. The Nile turns into blood. Fish die. Egypt stinks. And people are digging away at the banks of the Nile in order to find water to drink. Pharaoh again assembles his dark arts team, and again they're able to repeat this feat with some of the unblemished water that has been discovered. Food coloring, I don't know. Again, uh, they're just able to do it is what the text tells us. And we read once more in verse 22 of chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart remained hard. The turning of the Nile into blood would have been devastating to Egypt. 
they depended on the Nile for absolutely everything. A little bit like we do uh, oil or fossil fuels. So maybe you can imagine what it would be like to wake up one day and you're not able to get gas for your car and to have had the stock market crash, right? They depended on the Nile for absolutely everything. It's kind of, so, so that's the kind of social and economic upheaval that would have come as a result of God making the Nile bleed. Things are not good. Also, it's also important to note that an attack on the Nile is in effect an attack on Egypt's gods, right? The Nile is chief among their gods. It's one of the really neat things that we, we don't see plainly in the plagues is that often the things that God uses to oppress the Egyptians are things that they worship. So for, we have the Nile here, right? At the end, we'll have, in chapter, plague nine, we'll have darkness, which eclipses the sun god. That was one of their high gods, Re, Amun-Re, however you want to say it. And Numbers tells us that the Lord is executing judgment against these gods. And so I, I'm not going to point them all out as we work through the plagues, but one of them will be the next one we see is frogs, right? And so, um, for example, the frog goddess had a, like the head of a frog and sometimes the body of a frog. She was associated with the frog population and uh, fertility, often said to assist women in childbirth. And, you know, today sometimes frogs are associated with uh, childbirthing and fertility, all that fun stuff. And, and what God does is he uses the Egyptian goddess of fertility to plague them, to bring about their oppression. And he's saying, your goddess has no power over me. I am greater than this frog goddess. I control the frogs, not, not her. In fact, she doesn't even exist. She's powerless. Yahweh, over and over and over again, will take these so-called powers of Egypt, take the so-called powers of their counterfeit gods and bend them to his own will. And so you can see that if you worshiped something as your creator and sustainer, uh, the fact that it was turned into blood, would, that would throw you a little bit. And so that is what God does. He turns Egypt's lifeblood into actual blood. And all the land is taking note of this God of slaves. Also worthy to note that this plague and the Red Sea incident kind of serve as a narrative frame in terms of literature, how it's structured, of Israel's deliverance. This is kind of the start of it. And then the end of it will be the Egyptian armies being buried beneath the Red Sea. It's really neat. Um, Piren says on this particular plague that it is both a swift retribution uh, for the previous attempt to kill the Israelite male children and a jarring preview of Egypt's ultimate fate. The waters of the Nile will no longer bring security and prosperity to Egypt. They will rather be the cause of Egypt's destruction. The miraculous blood of the first plague will soon become the blood of Egyptian soldiers. The plague on the Nile was the first toll of the bell that signaled Egypt's demise. Judgment has come. So time passes. Once more, Moses goes to Pharaoh with the familiar ultimatum, let the people go or else, and this time the or else turns out to be frogs as a result of Pharaoh refusing to listen to the command. And this plague, it borders on comical, if you think about it. Uh, uh, just read with me in 8, verse 3. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on all your people and on all your servants. I mean, 
kids probably love this, right? Frogs everywhere. You can kind of picture frog jumping out of the oatmeal and, you know, in the kneading bread. It, it, it borders on funny. And as much as some of you might like frogs, I imagine uh, around here, a good many of you probably used to go, they call it gigging frogs, is that right? Where you, you take them out somehow. I'm not sure about the whole process. But th- this is more frogs than you can gig, right? This is a whole mess of frogs. It's not good. Somehow, though, once again, Pharaoh's magical gurus are able to reproduce this feat in miniature. Two notes. This is the last time that they're able to reproduce one of these miraculous signs. And then secondly, they're never able to undo the plagues. And so they're actually making it worse at this point. Uh, And in the plague narratives, one of the things that we often miss is that causing the plagues to stop is an act of God just as much as it is causing them to begin in the first place. And so they make the frog problem worse and they can't stop it. And so we read Pharaoh saying in verse 8 of chapter 8, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. They're everywhere. Take them away from me and my people and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Moses says, that's cool. Do you want the frog thing to stop? When would you like it to happen? Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Uh, Moses says, good, I'll make it happen that way. So that in verse 10 of chapter 8, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Moses prays, the plague stops, the frogs die, they lay in piles, the land stinks. And we read again in verse 15 of chapter 8, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's desire to let the people go fizzled as the frogs dissipated. And so a third plague comes without warning as Aaron takes his staff in accordance with the word of the Lord, strikes the ground, and up from the dust come gnats. And the Hebrew's kind of unclear here about what kind of insect it is exactly. So if you have a KJV, it might say lice or maggots in different translations. Some kind of really awful bug that would not be fun to have around you. I mean, you can imagine this, right? You've sat outside and had a book in hand, I hope, and a nice glass of lemonade to your right, just kind of enjoying the sunshine in the summertime, which I think is coming eventually, uh, I hope. And then all of a sudden, there's just one or two bugs flying around. And you can't concentrate. I mean, imagine hundreds of them. It'd be awful. Well, Pharaoh's dark arts team, they try to reproduce the gnats, and they can't. And they tell Pharaoh, this is no parlor trick. This is the very finger of God. This is an act of God. We can't imitate it. However, Pharaoh is not swayed. And so we read in verse 19 of chapter 8 once more, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Time is passing, by the way, between each of these plagues. It didn't happen in like nine days. It's a good period of time. Most scholars estimated about nine months. So you can put that in the back of your head. That'd be helpful. So Moses is commanded to go to Pharaoh once more in the morning and warn him that if he doesn't allow the people to serve Yahweh, swarms of flies now will torment the Egyptians and only the Egyptians. This is the first time we see the second of our key themes, which is the distinction God makes between Egypt and those who are following him. We read it in verse 22 of chapter 8. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. God's people are going to get spared the misery of being oppressed by flies, but Israel 
will not. And these, these flies are apparently enough to get Pharaoh to try and broker a deal with Moses. He says, all right, fine, fine, fine. Go to your God and worship, but do it here in Egypt. Moses, uh, in a comment that has to be dripping with sarcasm, responds, we would, but it wouldn't be right. We wouldn't want to insult the gods of Egypt. After all, your people know how powerful they are, and they might stone us, so we can't, can't do it here. It wouldn't be right. We'd be disrespectful to you. We need to go out into the wilderness. He's not, he's not going to negotiate with terrorists, right? He's not going to negotiate with Pharaoh. It's going to be God's way. So once more, we have Pharaoh pretending to give in here, and he says, okay, go into the wilderness, but don't go far, and plead for me. Make the flies stop. I also wonder, it doesn't tell us that the gnats stop, so I wonder if, like, the flies and the gnats are there together. It'd be awesome in, in a bad way. Moses says, that sounds good. I'll have the flies stop but you better not screw it up again by not letting us go. Then he prays, God removes the, the flies from Egypt, and we read in verse 32 of chapter 8, you guessed it, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. Which moves us into the fifth plague, where Moses returns to Pharaoh once more and announces that if he will not let the people go, God will afflict all of the livestock, livestock that are in the field that are associated with Pharaoh's people. Again, we see the distinction in verse 4 of chapter 9. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Long story short, a bunch of Egypt's animals die, and not one of Israel's animals die. And we are told in verse 7 of chapter 9 that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Next, God tells Moses to take a handful of soot from the kilns, so he's got like ashes in his hand, and, and to th- find Pharaoh, get an eye shot of him, and to like throw this stuff up in the air so that it becomes like a dust cloud. For some reason, when I read this, I thought of uh, LeBron James before basketball games, gets that baby powder, and he does this number, and it just goes up all over top of everybody. And so, you know, I imagine Moses does this number here, and, and it goes out, and Pharaoh sees, and this dust becomes some kind of disease, I guess, but it touches all of the Egyptians and brings boils onto them afflicts them with this skin disease. Uh, Taking the the soot from the kiln is kind of poetic justice if you think about it because it was this soot that came as a result of them baking bricks in the sun with just very little straw in slavery to the Egyptians. And so in a way, they kind of have the Egyptians getting what they deserve here. And we do see the distinction again in verse 11 of chapter 9. We're told that the boils affect only the Egyptians. This plague also marks a turning point because here is the first time that Pharaoh's refusal to heed the sign is attributed to Yahweh's hardening of his heart. Look at verse 12 with me in chapter 9. As you turn, I'm going to get my water and take a drink. I forgot it. Allergies are plaguing me this year. We read, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. 9.12 is a striking reminder of what God has been trying to teach Moses and Israel since the beginning of this Exodus episode, which is that he is in complete control. There's a palatable tension within the text because, as we've pointed out before, Pharaoh's hard heart is said to have come from two sources. Himself, it's his own will, and also from God. We've asked that question, well, who's doing it? And the text kind of says both. Both are true. 
Now, how both are true is mysterious, and this causes uh, great angst and consternation among philosophers, but I think it gives those who know God as Father a sense of wonder at his great wisdom. It it is delightful to try and study and, and puzzle together how divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together, but the Bible's not troubled by this paradox at all. I mean, the scriptures implicitly assume any apparent contradictions between these two concepts are reconciled in God's knowledge. We also see, like in the New Testament, this is not a theme that's exclusive to Exodus. We see Paul has no problem stating that the Lord chose to save him before he was born in one breath, and then in the next breath, proclaiming that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's no trouble for Paul to write about becoming all things to all people so that he might win some to Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, and then turning around and writing in Romans 9 that salvation depends not on human will, but on God's will. I mean, he even references Pharaoh there, and so I think we're going to have it on the screen. I don't, I don't know, but Romans chapter 9, uh, and this is verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read to you. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture, Exodus 9, 16, says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Quick sidebar here, if you're a Christian, this should come as an unassailable encouragement to you. If you choose to become a Christian one day, this should come as a great encouragement to you because what it tells you is that you cannot lose your salvation. The the same God that saved you is going to keep you in his love. That he doesn't fail. That because in Christ, when you're united to him by faith, God looks at you the same way he looks at Christ. Says, my blessed son or daughter, with you I am well pleased. It's a great encouragement because I know that I'm far from perfect. I know some of you are too, right? That God loves us on our best day just as much as he does on our worst, or on our worst day just as much as he does on our best. That's what I meant to say. He loves us. I think this mystery of God's control and man's choice is ultimately unsolvable this side of the new heavens and the new earth, but I don't think it should cause Christians to lose any sleep. Again, Paul wasn't troubled by it, Jesus doesn't bother explaining it. And the Bible doesn't see a problem with it. So go, you know, pursue knowledge. Try to understand everything that we possibly can about God. Study Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, Exodus here, and other relevant parts of Scripture. Think long and hard about them. But don't let them douse your affection for Christ or fill you with some kind of fear. I think a lot of people have trouble with this because especially in our culture, because we've lifted human autonomy as kind of the ultimate good and our, our ultimate independence, and to say that God infringes on that in any way seems to come as an affront to us. But the Bible has a different perspective. It says all things exist for God's glory. All things happen according to his will. And the scripture tells us that he's good. I think uh, a lot of times this verse, or verses like this, lead people to abandon Christianity abandon some kind of orthodoxy and explain these passages away and and trying to reconcile the two ideas. That's one way to respond. I think the right way, though, is to allow it to give you a sense of wonder. 
and to marvel at the God whose ways are higher than ours. I mean, I think it's for good reason God tells us in Isaiah 55, 8, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I mean, we can know God insofar as he's revealed himself to us in his word. And there are some things he doesn't tell us about himself. And so, you know, it's fun to try and puzzle and figure it out, but ultimately I think we're going to come up short because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His wisdom is infinite in trying to understand everything about him, things not revealed to us, from our limited perspective. It's a little bit like a child trying to understand the calculations of a mathematician, right? It's just not going to work out, not on the same playing field. Yahweh's governing of the universe should comfort all of us who know him because we who know him know that he is good. We know his character. Uh, Think about it like this. Uh, A child fears going into his room because there are monsters in there. No matter how much you reason with your child, I haven't had to do this yet, by the way, so I'm not implicating my child, but no matter how much you reason with them, there are no monsters in there, they can't get in, there's not like a portal in your closet. I'm not going in there. It's dark in there. There's scary stuff in there, man, not doing it. But you know what they will do is when mommy or daddy comes and, and takes that, that boy or girl by the hand and says, come on, honey, I'll go in with you and I'll show you there are no monsters. They're willing to go in. Because while they might not understand mommy and daddy's logic or their rationalization, they do understand that mommy and daddy are good, that they work on my behalf, that they, they love me. They want to protect me. They'll keep me safe. So they're willing to go into that dark room likewise we are incapable of understanding everything about God but we understand well his good and loving character and we know that we can trust him and so in those areas of theology where command there there is mystery here I don't know how it works we don't have to uh, lose sleep over how do I puzzle all these things together you know God's shown me that he is good he's shown me how good he is in the cross I know the the, the heights of his love for me because of the depths he was willing to go for me. I can trust him so we can have peace. I think it's misguided and harmful to try and harmonize the text here, to try and say, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first, like a little bit, and then God just finished the deal. That's not what the text has said. So I think we do damage to it if we do that. I think we need to let that tension remain and just say, it's okay to not know. God is working for his glory here, and likewise, Pharaoh is being kind of stubborn. He doesn't want to follow God. We're told both of these things are true. Let's, let's embrace them both. And Peter ends is spot on. He says, let the tension remain. So we find the Egyptians covered in boils, Pharaoh's heart duly hardened, and Moses approaches Pharaoh once again and makes him privy to information that we already know in verse 13 of chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, God could have killed Pharaoh with a blink of an eye. But instead, he chooses to display his glory by performing signs and wonders that have been talked about ever since. 
God's making clear to Pharaoh that he is using Pharaoh's rebellion to serve his will. And because of Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go, all of Egypt, the world's greatest nation at the time, and all of the world will see how great this God is. Egypt will bend the knee in submission to the God of its slaves. It's remarkable. Yahweh's making sure that we know there's none like him. He has no rivals. Egypt has really been made nothing more than a theater showcasing God's unmatched power. Consequently, God's greatness will be proclaimed everywhere. So Moses continues talking to uh, Pharaoh, and he informs him that this great hailstorm of the century is going to come upon Egypt, and it's going to wreak some havoc. And it does. All the plant life and animal life are ruined, everything in the fields. Something interesting in this section is that hail prepares to come. Uh, Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. Now therefore send, this is talking to the Egyptians, Get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to chafe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now because fear in the Old Testament is all usually tantamount to having faith, uh, I like to hedge and, and think that some of these are uh, Egyptians have seen who God is and are beginning to follow him. I think that that assumption is corroborated in uh, verse 38 of chapter 12 when we're told a mixed multitude goes up with the Israelites out of Egypt. I can't know for sure, so I'm speculating there. But what we do know for sure is that a mixed multitude goes out with them and that Judaism, I, always, I used to get this wrong for so long, Judaism is never a racist religion, right? Israel always is supposed to be a light to the nations so that nations come and join theocratic Israel and become part of the people of God. They ultimately are to display God's glory so that people will know who God is, believe him, and be saved by him. At any rate, some of these Egyptians have gotten wise that we should probably bring our stuff into the field. This Moses guy has been right a lot. And so they bring their stuff in, and and it's saved. But all the stuff that stays out in the field is killed and destroyed. Verse 26 of chapter 9 again highlights the distinction made between those following Pharaoh and those who fear the Lord. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then we come across something quite unexpected. Pharaoh confesses his sin. Look at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses promises to stop the thunder so that everyone will know, that Pharaoh will know that the earth is the Lord's. He keeps his word, and in concert with the hailstorm stopping, Pharaoh hardened his heart in sin once more. And so we read in verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. I don't want to stray too far from the parameters of this sermon, 
But I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that remorse and repentance are not the same thing. What Pharaoh is feeling is remorse. He's not happy with the consequences of his rebellion against God, and so he feels bad about it. He's going to say he's sorry because he wants it to stop. Repentance is not just feeling guilty. The word literally means having a change of mind. And so it's a a turning away from the way that you were doing things. Uh, In Pharaoh's case, he's sinning and rebelling against the Lord and doing things differently. Turning, uh, the way we talk about it in gospel presentations, it's turning away from doing things my way and starting to do them God's way and pursuing righteousness. And for the Christian, you know, there's still tension that remains. You want to listen to your heart sometimes and sometimes it deceives you into sinning. But ultimately, you have changed your mind about life and said, no longer am I on the throne of my life. It's God who's in charge of me, not me. And when you repent, you are saying, I've wrongly followed my heart instead of listening to God's voice. And from now on, I'm going to try and listen to God's voice because I know what God has done for me. I've seen the ugliness of my sin and I've also seen the beauty of God. True repentance comes when you taste and see that the Lord is good. You see his glory. True repentance comes when you see what Christ has done for you. And you can't help but show him how much you love him by obeying his word. More simply, true repentance says, I'm wrong, God's right, I'll follow Jesus. Uh, Paul actually describes the difference between remorse and repentance for us a little bit. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, this is what he writes. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. I like to translate salvation there, life. So for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When we confess our sins and turn from them and put our faith in Jesus, we get to enjoy life without regret. But when we simply say sorry and continue to pursue the same old sins in the same old way, well, we've still earned the wages of our sin, which is death and separation from God. Pharaoh shows us all what worldly sorrow looks like And I think his life serves as a warning to us all. We need to be aware of false repentance. I think one of the great privileges we enjoy as part of the the family of God as a church is that we get to hold one another accountable to those things. We get to check up on each other's lives. How are you doing? How how are you doing in repenting and turning from these things? We get to, as we've said it recently, shove one another along that path of holiness and encourage one another. I do wonder, friends, when when you come face to face with your sin, are you tempted to be like Pharaoh and show remorse without repentance? I hope not. All right, plague eight. Uh, Y'all know how it goes at this point. Moses makes a demand and Pharaoh doesn't comply. Uh, Pharaoh's folly is really at its pinnacle here. Even his advisors are like, man, just let these guys go. I mean, can't you see Egypt is all jacked up. It's not getting any better. Like, just just let him go, man. But stubborn as always, the king of Egypt attempts to strike another compromise, but once more, Moses refuses. Pharaoh gets really mad, and he has his bouncer throw Aaron and Moses out of his quarters. This time, the plague is a ton of locusts. They swarm Egypt, and they decimate whatever's left of the vegetation. There's so many locusts. We're told that the land is darkened, and so like a, a shade gets pulled over the sun, right? It's kind of dark outside, but you can still see. Pharaoh once more feigns repentance. Moses again pleads with the Lord for him. 
Yahweh again removes the plague, and Pharaoh once more hardens his heart. Love the beginning of chapter 10. I want to look at that. Uh, we're told another reason why all this is happening. It's one that we haven't had to this point. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God's working sovereignly in Egypt through these signs and wonders so that not only the Egyptians will see God's greatness, so that not only will the nations see God's greatness, but also so that his people and their children's children will know him as their Lord. And they go, what sign do we know that this God is our God and that he loves us? And they're supposed to point them back to the Exodus. Tell them about these events and about the Passover. The Israelites are to remember what God does to save them. The locust darkening of the sky allows us to almost hear the ominous tune of the story as things are getting worse. We move into the ninth plague, which will be the last one we examine together this morning. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt. Look at this line. It's, it's a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Pharaoh tells Moses to go with the people, but not their livestock. Moses rejects the offer, and we read in verse 27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. The curtain is closing on Egypt. The final plague is just over the horizon. This plague, though, of darkness would have been especially troubling to Egyptians, they worshipped the sun as God. And it was thought that Pharaoh's own deity was derivative of the sun god. The God of Israel here with the darkness is proving his supremacy over Egypt's greatest god. He's announcing that the sun is not God. That he, the God who made the sun, determines when and where and how it shines. Making his greatness known. Displaying his glory by his sovereign power and his rescue of his people. Don't, don't miss the distinction that God makes between his people and Egypt. His people enjoy the light while pharaohs are buried in darkness. Here's the interesting thing, though. Why does Israel not get buried in darkness? Why does Israel not experience all these plagues as well? Remember in chapter 5, the people curse Moses? Why'd you come here? You made things worse for us. Remember the people identify themselves as Pharaoh's servants over and over again. Remember the people later in the desert when they're with Moses, they'll say, if only we would have died in Egypt. At least we had fish there. This manna stuff is awful after the first few hundred days. Israel does not deserve to be saved. Nothing special about them. Why? Why are they saved? 
but because God had made a promise to Abraham. Because he had chosen to set his grace and his love upon this people. See, the truth is that Israel and you and me and all men deserve all of the plagues. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be buried in darkness because of our cosmic treason against the king of the universe. But that's, that's the plot twist of the cross. Right? That's the reason that the gospel is good news. See, on the cross, Jesus took the darkness that is to be felt so that his people can enjoy the light of life. In the grave, Jesus lay buried in the darkness that we deserve. Three days he did not move from his place so that we don't have to be. On the third day, he rose from the dead, proving his person and his power. Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, they verify the truth about who he is. They verify the truth that for us, if we are united to him by faith, that yes, death has a sting for us. We will go down into the grave. But that there will come a day when we, like our Lord, rise from the dead. And we get to, to sing over death and evil and say, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because Christ has gained the victory for us. He went into darkness so that his words would be true. John eight twelve, when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, friends, the story of Exodus is actually every Christian's story. We were enslaved to sin and evil until God worked sovereignly in our lives, not because we were good or there was anything special in us, because he loved us. He worked in us to break our chains and set us free to do what we were made to do. Enjoy him and give him glory forever. That's the chief end of man. It's why we exist. Jesus rose from the dead so that we might know he alone is God and there is no one like him in all the earth. God raised up God the Son to show his power. And he has made his name known. He did so in the early church. I mean, John tells us that's why he wrote his gospel, verse 31 of chapter 20. But these, the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 John 5, 13 tells us again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. His name has been proclaimed. And his name is proclaimed now. The cross, God's work on the cross, Exodus is a great story of God's signs and wonders. He displays his glory brightly, but it pales in comparison to the glory of what Jesus has done for us. It points us to that. that the cross of Christ is the supreme event in human history. It is the way we are to know that there is none like God. A God that would come and die for me? In an odd way, the empty tomb makes a distinction 
See, it's a plague on those who would harden their hearts, for it announces the coming judgment. It announces that there is a God and King, a ruler of the universe, who makes all things right. The empty tomb also is a wonderful sign of God's love and his mercy to those who believe, for it announces our salvation. I wonder what defines you? What's distinct about you? Belief or unbelief? Do you see the resurrection of Jesus like Pharaoh saw the plagues? Something to be explained away, then ignored, then ultimately resented. Wonder, do you believe? All of these things were done so that you may know there is a God in heaven who wants you to believe him, believe in him, unite yourself by faith to him, and inherit wealth beyond the walls of this world. Come into the new Jerusalem. My hope is that you would come into this life without regret by following Jesus. My hope is that you've already done that, that this same gospel still thrills you. The light of the world has come to dwell in you. And he seeks to display his glory now, yes, through the sign and wonder of the cross, yes, through the exodus, but in his church, in his people. We are now the display of God's glory. The church is the sign and wonder of God to a lost and dying world. We are to be the light that shines in the darkness and proclaims, we're all messed up. We need a Savior, and anyone can be saved. If only they'll come and take shelter beneath the blood of Christ. Follow him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank, that, thank you that all of your word was written to us so that we might be um, more deeply in love with you and equipped for the work of ministry. Thank you that you don't just save us, but that you save us to a purpose that's uh, to bring you glory. Thank you that you've called us out of the world and put us into your church and placed us onto mission. And that mission is to uh, take this glorious gospel to all nations. To work diligently to honor you with our lives so that people would see there is something beautiful about Christianity. There's something beautiful about living life according to your design. Father, we pray that you would cause our attraction to you to swell within us. Let us overflow with the happiness and the security that only comes from Christ. Thank you for this time we have together to be reminded of all that is ours by virtue of your grace. Father, we thank you that we get to have fellowship with you and with one another for all eternity. And that we get to have a foretaste of that right now in our gathering together. Oh Lord, you are good. We pray that you would help us to take you by the hand and to trust you as we walk through the darkness of this world. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.